James 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Whereas the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. As we begin today, I'm once again reminded just how much these words truly are spiritual truths. And they're filled with secret and hidden wisdom from God. And the only way that you and I can begin to fathom the depths of their meaning is through the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit ministering within us. Listen to these words that tell us exactly what I just said. This is 1 Corinthians 2. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now why do I begin this message in this way today? It's because once again, as I have read and reread the words in this passage that I just read to you, God has reminded me That his ways, his character, his depth of holiness is so far beyond any rationale and comprehension that my mind is able to muster. Here in clear and precise words, God chooses to bring to our consideration one of the most troubling and apparent contradictions in the whole of the New Testament. That of the question of exactly how our souls are able to be saved and spared from the eternal wrath of hell. Simply put, what does it take to save our mortal souls? What does it take to save your soul? Is it faith? Or is it faith plus works? It's so easy for us to answer that question when we're studying the book of Romans 
That's where the Apostle Paul so clearly and emphatically outlines those doctrines of solo fide and solo Christos, which says that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And I preached that to you last week. And we sing the song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And if you and I have truly surrendered our hearts and minds to Christ, then the Holy Spirit will resoundingly declare to our souls that those truths that I just said to you are absolutely right and true, that our justification will only come to us through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. But then, but then God brings us here to James chapter 2. And he tells us to stop. Take a time out. Take a moment to think. A moment to wait upon me, God. To wait upon the Lord. That he has one more precious nugget of secret wisdom to reveal to us. A wisdom that tells us that there is more to be understood about His precious gift of salvation. That He, our God, is not one-dimensional. As so many people want God to be. Only having God to be what we want to make Him up to be and not the God that He really is. And I want you and I to realize that we do that. Each one of us does that. We like God to be a certain way and so we just kind of push all of our beliefs over into how we want Him to be. And we don't allow Him to be the way He really is. The way these Scriptures tell us that He is. I made mention of that last week in the message. That there are many a devout believer that fall victim to this whole understanding or desire that God be one-dimensional. That He's only a God of love. That he'll some way figure out how most everybody can be saved. Especially my own children or my own loved ones of some sort. Even those that reject him. But listen, God is not one dimensional. He is a God of love, yes. But he's also holy and he's righteous and he cannot allow sin to exist in His presence and especially to abide with Him eternally in in the kingdom of heaven. He needs to deal with that and He will and Scripture tells us that and there will be judgment and there will be hell. God is not one-dimensional. Don't hold Him to that. Now here again in this passage, God's revealing that yes, He is multi-dimensional. He's saying to us here that it is not a contradiction within these scriptures to believe that while our salvation yes is through faith alone in Christ alone but that works works and specifically works that manifest love also have a place within this justification process that he speaks about here and that special place that works occupies is not just, oh yeah, we have to do works too. Which is the way a lot of us Christians look at works. Oh yeah. It's not an oh yeah. But rather, works are an absolute requirement. He says that here, very clearly. 
Now, that being said, how can God's words, His precepts that seem so contrary, seem even contradictory, how can they actually reconcile themselves into being one complete truth? Because they are. They are one truth. Now, first a reminder about all of these words, whether we're reading the words from the Apostle Paul or from that that speak of salvation by faith, or we're speaking the words of James that are telling us of this necessity for works, there is one overarching truth that brings all of this together. And it always does that. It brings every word in Scripture together. And it is that every word within these Scriptures has been breathed into the mind of the writers whether it be Paul or James or Matthew, Mark, whoever it is. We know that from 2 Timothy 3. It says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every word is the breath of God. And so from these words... We can know with a certainty that there is no contradictions nowhere in Scripture. And not in this matter here. That all these words are from God and they are carefully intertwined to make one complete truth. I want to pause for a moment and for us to consider a technical word. The word is orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is defined as being the authorized or generally accepted theory or doctrine or practice of something. And as it relates to our Christian faith, orthodoxy means our knowing the necessity of certain of these portions of our Christian belief and doctrine about the Trinity, about creation, about the gospel and the shed blood of Christ and on and on. That's the orthodoxy of our Christianity. And God wants you and me to have that orthodoxy solid within our minds and hearts. And you only get that from studying these scriptures. You don't get that from coming here once a week for a half hour listening to this message. You'll get just a a dribble of it. I've told you it takes me 10 to 12 to 15 hours to put this sermon together. God's working in my mind and I'm working through these scriptures. He wants you and me to have our orthodoxy solid within our minds and hearts. Some of you do. He wants all of us to. But listen, listen. Even though that may be that we would have our orthodoxy really solid, we still often cannot correspondingly know what God really intends by some of these words that we read. Why is that so? It's because God is ministering individually within each of our hearts. Yes, He has this doctrine that the meanings never change. His Word is immutable, unchangeable. It will never change. It doesn't change to meet today's culture. We want it to. 
so that we can include all of these things that and, and habits that are wrong. More accepting of people and their sinful habits. But God's Word is immutable and it is unchanging. But He ministers to each of us individually. And each of us are individual personalities and we think differently. But He wants to bring us all back to this holiness. And so what might look different to one of you in the way that God's working and maybe how He's working in my life, it's not that His Word has changed. It's just that He's working with us individually and it's applied individually to each person's circumstance and and He wants us to know that. Now here in this passage, James most likely had a whole different audience from that of the Apostle Paul. James, it seemed, more often ministered to the Jews where Paul ministered most all of his Christian life to Gentiles. And those Jews that James was ministering to, they probably had their orthodoxy down real well because Jews studied orthodoxy. They studied the tenets of their faith. Might not be correct, but they have that orthodoxy of theirs down pretty pat. But the Gentiles didn't that Paul was talking to. Most of them, they didn't. And then when you look at us today in this modern church setting that we have, we're, we're more like the Jews. We have grown up in this southern style Bible Belt orthodoxy that says you can't work your way to heaven and so we throw away works because we're afraid somebody's going to try to earn their way into heaven. But we throw away a part of God's absolute requirements when we say we're not going to do works. James is here demanding that you and I examine our orthodoxy to see if it's right, to see if it's clear. And he uses the word to see if it is complete, to see if our faith has been completed. And that's what he's talking about here. In order to complete that faith, you and I have to have works. It has to have all of those elements or else it is no faith at all. And he doesn't cut us any slack on this. He just flat out says that it's dead. If our faith doesn't have works, it is dead. And here he is especially giving emphasis to the point in time of that first moment of receiving Christ into our souls for salvation. Because that's the moment of justification. Yes, we can do works of justification after that, but justification takes place at that one moment that we are saved. And he's saying here that works must occupy an integral part of that spiritual transaction and that there's no argument between the two, between faith and works, but that they are absolutely compatible, interrelated with each other in their context and their purpose. And that you and I are to look for that compatibility and not the difference, but the compatibility of faith and works as we attempt to fathom this hidden wisdom that he's sharing with us here. And as we attempt to do that today, one of the first things that comes to my mind that we ought to do is 
to know the meaning of works. Because that's what he's talking about here. What is the meaning of works? And by far, I believe in most Christian minds, the application of this term works harkens back to the days of the Old Testament where there was a at least a seeming necessity for a person to practice obedience to works of the law, the laws of Moses. And then by that obedience to that law, there would be an earning or a meriting of eternal salvation. But that that is not what God is talking about here. That's not the intended meaning of works. How do we know that? Because it's just a few verses earlier. We studied this last week. There's a clear declaration that if we ever hope, if we put our hope of being saved into obedience to the law, then what we would have to do is keep every law, every law in existence. And if we failed in one law, then we failed in them all. He explained that just a few verses earlier. And therefore we could not be saved by doing those works because we'll never be able to do them perfectly. So then, in this context, the word works does not mean that we're required to keep the law of that sort or any of the other forms of works that might earn or merit our salvation. God intend, His intended meaning instead focuses on works that are an act of love. An act of love. He says that to us here in verses 15, 16 and 17. He says, If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so listen, so also, verse 17, so also by itself, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Folks, verse 17 is really plain. You can't find several meanings. There's only one. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. These words describe a kind of faith. A faith that has within it an essential element of vibrant love. Vibrant love. Love that is clearly and easily worked out in the behavior that we show towards other people. Here in the example he's giving giving is seeing a person in need of food and clothing and, and quickly giving them the things they need. Not stopping and taking the time to decide whether or not they ought to get a job. He doesn't mention that here. It's you and me having this faith that reaches to help others. Works of love. Not works of judgmental attitudes. Jesus talked about the same thing over in John 13. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. People will be able to look at you and know that you're a Christian. He says, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So then, works of love truly are the kind of works that 
are being talked about here by James, they are an essential part of our faith. And it's clear that here in the use of the word works, the Holy Spirit's not instructing us to fall back on some dependence of being able to earn our own salvation. He's speaking about, just as I said, works of love, wherein our faith is made evident, proved out by our works, by our feeding and clothing the poor and taking care of the widows and orphans. James repeats in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So then, certain kinds of works are not just important. They are absolutely essential. But how? How do works become an essential part of the justification that's already been made perfect by the shed blood of Christ? That's the big question that, that's coming up here. If our justification is already made perfect because Jesus died there on the cross, then what is the necessity then? How do you fit in these works? This is a tightly knitted doctrine about faith and works. It's very tightly knitted. Romans 1, 16 and 17 gives this doctrine of justification by faith. Listen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, for in this gospel, is the righteousness of, of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It doesn't say the just shall live by faith and works. It says here, the just shall live by faith. And then over in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a verse that you and I have quoted many times, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So you say, yes. But that's only part of the doctrine. Because James comes along then, and he fits into that, and he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, how do they fit together? May I first confess that all this is so far beyond my wisdom and the wisdom that God has imparted to me thus far. I'm only going to give you a small portion of what I understand this doctrine to be saying to us. It's a small amount, but it's all that the Lord's given me so far. But I'll share it with you. These precepts, faith and works of love, they are part of the same transaction that takes place with each of us simultaneously at that very moment that our justification and salvation takes place. The moment that you actually step across that line from unsaved to being saved, there are several things that take place. We want to think, oh, it's only that we have received Christ as our Savior. And the fact is, we have not had time to do many good works. But the problem is, it all does take place at that very moment of justification, the very moment that we're saved. And so, 
from my understanding of what's being said here, it appears that that which takes place at that moment has three elements to it. It's a cause, an effect, and it's evidence. What's taking place? From the words there in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we know that the gift of our salvation is a complete gift. At that one moment, now I'm talking about that one moment that you and I receive Christ as our Savior and Lord. Whenever that was for each of us. Mine was several decades ago. But at that very moment, God gave me this gift. God gave you that gift when you were saved. And it's a complete gift. A complete gift. It's a gift of faith. Because we have to have that before we can ever do the next thing. And that is to receive Him as Savior and Lord. So He gives us two things. He gives us the faith to believe and then He gives us this gift of the salvation. But here James is saying, that's not all. Because he's talking about that very same moment of justification. James seems to be saying that this gift of faith is made complete by God working in us a spirit of love that enables us to love others and to show others works of love. That there is another transition that takes place within our souls. And that our salvation then will be evidenced, will be proven out, not only by our newfound belief in Christ, but also by a newfound ability to love and to love not only God, but to love other people especially and to show that love. And that newfound love really will become evident and clearly seen as it's worked out in our daily behavior in works of love. We'll become a different person. We'll start treating other people differently. One final question. Why did God have James come along nearly to the end of this Bible and bring in this matter of works and of love? To bring it works of love to the forefront of our thinking. It's probably because as we look at ourselves, look at ourselves first, and then we look around at other people who claim to be Christians, that say that they're Christians, is there evidence, real evidence, that we have salvation? Because that evidence is going to be, in part at least, shown by, are we willing to do works of love? To go beyond ourselves, or are we just simply going home each night and taking care of ourselves? How much time have you spent in this last week caring for someone else beside yourself and especially outside your immediate family or whatever? See, there's an evidence that's got to be visible or He's saying to you and to me, we may have a problem. He's saying to you and me that if our faith is not evidenced by our works, then our faith may really be dead. Really dead. Useless. So the question then, as we close, do you have a vibrant faith? A faith that is alive and can plainly be seen to be alive because of this working out of works of love? Is that evidence plain both to you in your own observance of yourself but can it also be seen by other people 
where they'll say, he's different, she's different than what they used to be. That evidence needs to be able to show or we've got a problem. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's pray.